Remember the movie Ocean's Eleven, where the eleven robbers and criminals and capers knock over the casino and take a bunch of money? It would work out if split evenly, they all got about 14 and a half million bucks or $160 million total if you're trying to do the mental math in your head. Now, this might seem like a lot of money, and it absolutely is. It's funny to think, though, that the movie grossed almost three times that, $450 million worth of earnings. Now, if you thought Danny Ocean and his crew were efficient getting $14.5 million each, wait until you hear about Thad Roberts, who stole $20 million worth of moon rocks while he was an intern at NASA. He didn't sell them or cash out. He took them to a hotel where his girlfriend was waiting. And if you think this story is about to take a turn that's only for mature audiences, well, it is. But that's not what this episode is about. People love hotels for all kinds of reasons, from comfortable beds to going down to the lobby bar and just looking at the beautiful interior design and architecture, especially in older hotels that have a lot of history behind them. You can just picture the bartender on a slow Tuesday night as you go and order a cocktail and while they're making it, they say, do you want to hear something wild that happened here? And then you take your cocktail, go sit in the, the beautiful lobby and some of that furniture you just can't seem to get in your own home. And especially not during the pandemic. Furniture was an industry that was weirdly impacted by, by COVID-19. On one hand, all the hotels, restaurants, and traditional wholesale accounts, they stopped buying. And customers couldn't go into a, a showroom. If you're spending a few thousand dollars on seating... You couldn't even sit on it. So what were you supposed to do? And that's what this episode of Rolled Up is all about, as I chat with Ian Leslie, the former chief marketing officer of Industry West. You'll hear all about how they had to adapt, pivot, and change to not only survive, but thrive a little bit during the pandemic. And in the outro, Jamie Sutton makes his first appearance on this season of Rolled Up. You might know him as the GM at OmniSend or Employee Zero, who helped launch Shopify Plus. I hope you've got a comfortable seat and enjoy this episode of Rolled Up. We would see probably about 25 to maybe on a good month, like a Black Friday, uh, you know, holiday time, maybe 30% of our transactions occur actually on the website. And then post-COVID or during the height of COVID and today, we're seeing closer to 50% of our transactions occur on the website. So that's been a big shift from the trade to the consumer side. Uh, so we had to shift uh, with office spaces not buying, with restaurants not buying, with hotels not buying, which had been our bread and butter for the first nine years of the company. As we tried to extend the consumer side, all of a sudden we just kind of exponentially grew on the consumer side and the consumer buying habits and the products they were looking for. Joining me today is Ian Leslie, the Chief Marketing Officer, CMO of Industry West, an e-commerce store that sells industrial, premium, mid-century, modern furniture. And e-commerce got its start with Amazon selling books that all had the exact same ISBN, so you knew what you were getting, but furniture can be tricky. You don't want to buy something that looks good in the photo, but by the time you get it, after two weeks, your sofa's sinking in, the chairs are wobbly. 
and you spend a lot of money for something that looks good, but just doesn't hold up. So there are a ton of challenges with selling furniture online, but during the pandemic, that was the only option. So Ian's going to chat a little bit about how the industry changed, what that looked like, and really how to buy furniture online with really a, a high ticket item when maybe you can't sit on it. Ian, welcome. Welcome to the Rolled Up Podcast. Hey, so so happy to be here. That was a great intro. I appreciate it. Thank you. And it's, I'm glad that we could get connected because I've I've found how the various industries adapted to COVID really interesting with the food industry having to get product to grocery stores that may have been going into restaurants with so much more coming online and a lot of it here to stay. But I want to turn it over to you and let's go back when COVID first hit. So let's say maybe about a year ago, we're recording in, in May. So May, June, when retail was sure. starting to open up a, again, but it was still not nearly the, the same as it was. What did that look like for, for furniture? And especially when you sell so much online already? I mean, it was a tricky time for us. So, I mean, as we kind of, we actually started, we ended uh, 2019 really strong, started January into early February, 2020. I mean, it was really strong. We were looking at at some great numbers and year over year numbers, even, you know, pre-COVID and we're looking forward to a strong year. And that was web and and our offline sales as well. And then COVID hit and, um, you know, we really had to pivot to primarily online sales. So, I like to talk about the company and kind of give a little context in that, like, we've always been e-commerce. So we've never done um, direct mail. We never really have done print catalogs. We've never done cold calling. We've never done trade shows. So everything begins and ends with our website. Now, that being said, um, we deal very heavily in uh, the trade and in B2B. And when you're selling into office spaces, restaurants, uh, airport lounges, et cetera, um, a lot of those customers are going to shop the site, but still want a formal like kind of sales member, sales team experience where they'll a- ask for an estimate. They'll have to send that estimate to their client, get a check cut, et cetera, et cetera. So furniture is a bit of an old school vertical in, in the B2B side. So uh, prior to COVID, we would see probably about 25 to maybe on a good month, like a Black Friday, uh, you know, holiday time, maybe 30% of our transactions occur actually on the website. And then post-COVID or during the height of COVID into even through today, we're seeing closer to 50% of our transactions occur on the website. So that's been a big shift from the trade to the consumer side. Uh, so we had to shift uh, with office spaces not buying, with restaurants not buying, with hotels not buying, which had been our bread and butter for the first nine years of the company. As we tried to extend the consumer side, all of a sudden we just kind of exponentially grew on the consumer side and the consumer buying habits and and the products they were looking for. So I mean, I think um, not unlike what you hear about, you know, Nike or trying to give other good examples, but I know like Nike is one that reported that, you know, it hit its five, six, seven year e-commerce goal in 2020. Um, I mean, I think we jumped ahead probably five years in our commerce goals in, in just 2020 into 2021. And now 2021, we're continuing to see, um, you know, upwards of 130, 140% year over year growth over 2020 for, for e-commerce specifically. Wow. I didn't even think of the, the business side selling to offices and restaurants, but also one thing that I'm following is the, the trend of, well, without the big 
boom and shift to e-commerce through COVID, how can especially smaller brands survive? And I think that what you really hit on was what would your business look like in 2027 if there was no no pandemic where right. you still have to run e-commerce as your part of your PL, it's just gonna be a much bigger part. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, this kind of, I think I'm just kind of being a dead horse to an extent, but I mean, I think like what we saw with avian flu years ago in China and Webb does a great job of explaining this is of just how that kind of just exponent or SARS rather, you know, just exponentially grew e-com for the Asian markets over that time to where um, it uh, represented such a larger share of retail and how brick and mortar space in, in Asia kind of decreased per capita. Uh, that's We were still 10 years back in that share or that breakdown in the United States. And I think just COVID has upended that. And, you know, I think so much e-com has grown, you know, has just jumped ahead 10 years. And we're still, a lot of places are still under that brick and mortar uh, weight and anchor. But I mean, I think we'll additionally see um, the amount of retail per capita or square footage go down over the coming years. And I think that makes a really interesting point where if your lease was coming up in say July, 2020, Mm -hmm. for sure, you're just getting out of there and going all in on e-commerce and perhaps as your retail obligations Mm -hmm. come, come up in the next couple of years, it'll be really interesting to think about what that, that looks like. What do you think the the future of retail space as well will look like, especially for things that are so brick and mortar driven? To use Nike as an example, you can buy shoes online, but there's something to be said for going and, and getting measured up or walking on right. the treadmill. And the same thing with, with furniture. There's something to be said for going and sitting on the sofa you're going to buy either for your office or, or home. Yeah, I mean, there's those are great points, and there's so much to unpack there in terms of like what the price point is and what the customer, the user base is. Like, I, I live in a really small town here in South Carolina, and um, we do have a my buddy runs a running store. No pun intended. He runs a running store, and um, I mean, he's seen like crazy growth during this. You know, once we were able to reopen stores, I mean, he just has a line out the door because like people still aren't really going to gyms and people are at home a lot more and trying to kind of be into home health and are running and walking in their communities. And he's seen, I mean, he sells like top of the line, you know, running shoes, you know, so generally I think his AOV, you know, on a pair is like 130, $150. So that's an experience. You're totally right. Like you need to go to this shop and get measured up and, and run up and down the sidewalk and see how they feel on you for an $150 shoe. I mean, and then there's the other side of it, like the Nike Puma Adidas side where like, I'm happy to go online and buy my kid a pair of, you know, 50, 60, $70 soccer cleats. Mm -hmm. And if they fit great, if they don't like it's free returns. And I think it's a great kind of conversation to have is like how that fits into now furniture and people's willingness to do that. I mean, I think for us, like we were never, you know, restoration hardware is so heavy into um, real estate. I mean, they have like major real estate holdings throughout the country in terms of their storefronts, like how they dealt under that or dealt with that during the pandemic when people weren't coming in and they weren't making revenue from those stores. Like, I don't know, but it's not a position I would have liked to have been in. No. We have the one store in Soho 
And I mean, your narrative or your or your hypothetical in terms of re-upping the lease did come due to us this this summer or is coming due, and we're going to re-up because I mean, it's a strategic location for us. Like we're in the heart of Soho, we're in a great location. We're you know, tons of foot traffic when you know now that spring is is here and people are outside. I mean, and it's almost like a credibility thing too for us just to be in Soho. So I mean, I think, but we're we're not in every strip mall in the country. If we were in every strip mall in the country, I think that's like a, a bit of a different question. And I think like I, I, I do think those merchants are going to have to rethink about like their investment in those spaces and whether it's more like, I mean, I think we're seeing more short term pop up sort of experiences that are going to happen, particularly around like the high buying seasons. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a, a bit of a divestment from brick and mortar in some locations. I think it's like, but again, I think it depends on the AOV. Like, I think if it makes sense for a higher end brand to have strategic locations in New York, Atlanta, Austin, LA, San Francisco, et cetera, you know, not to be really worried about having, you know, space in, you know, some other areas of middle America. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's it depends on the vertical and it depends on the brand. For us, I mean, I think it's been a value add to have the space in Soho. But I mean, I think long story short to your question, how are people buying twenty five hundred dollars sofas without ever sitting on them? The answer is like, I frankly don't know. Like, <laughs> it's a, like it's it's really always been uh, amazing to me that we're able to do it as well as we are. I think a lot of credit goes to our photography, which is has always been done in house. I mean, I think a lot of the credit goes to the curation of the product by Jordan and Ann, our founders. But I mean, I think it's been an interesting thing to see over the past six years, how even pre-COVID, I mean, we were seeing amazing growth in e-com. And now with COVID, it's just been that much more. So, I mean, I think uh, there is an appetite for it. I think furniture is one of the more difficult verticals because like, at least with clothes and sneakers, like those industries have an easier time with free returns. Whereas like, I can't really do free returns on a sofa. <laughs> you need a flatbed truck and at least two people to come pick it up. Right. So um, it's good product. It's okay marketing by me. And I think a lot of it is just uh, a changing nature of, of the consumer base, but it's hard sledding. I mean, for furniture, it's, it's tough sledding. There's a lot of difficulty, you know, different logistical issues there. But um, one thing that that I did because I had to buy some furniture during the pandemic was the the FaceTime call with the mm. the the furniture reps. What did you see? Did you offer that? Did did customers take you up on it? I'd love to just hear about that as almost sort of the the concierge sales experience that you did, especially when COVID was very locked down. You still had rent to pay. People still wanted to buy furniture. How did you bridge some of those gaps? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think maybe somewhere where we have always succeeded is we've sort of always had that concierge experience. I mean, like our sales team, to their credit, our support team really goes the extra mile. When you email in, like, you know who you're talking to. It's not just like a generic, I mean, it's a generic email address, but there's a name behind it. So like, if you, you know, are emailing info at industrywest.com, like Rocco is seeing your email and Rocco is replying and you're dealing with Rocco. And like, we're not such a big team that like, it's this crazy arbitrage of people where you don't know who you're dealing with at any given point. And like, and then, you know, if you say like, hey, can I call you? This would be easier to do over the phone. Like, they're going to call you. Like, we're going to say yes. We're not going to say like, oh no, for our records, we'd rather keep this in the email thread. And we've always been like that. Um, and I think that's a credit to Jordan and our founders in, in building that culture and a credit to the people we hire. 
So, I mean, I think like, yes, like the answer is like, yes, that's always great and great policy. And I think like we're really active on our chats, uh, on the chat of the website and dealing with customers there. And like, um, I mean, have we done much with Zooms and FaceTimes? We haven't. Uh, we recently just added a, a virtual tour of the Soho showroom to the website, which has been kind of cool. And, and it's relatively new. So I really don't have metrics on how well that's performing yet. But then since we've kind of soft opened, reopened the store uh, in February, March, we've been doing hours by appointment only. Um, and I mean, we see people taking advantage of, of making appointments to come into the showroom and shop, which has been really cool to see and cool to see just the customer response to that and, and the customer action with that. So, and someone who wants to make an appointment and set that time aside with our sales team on the floor, on the sales floor in Soho is obviously way, you know, lower down in the funnel for us and is, is a very interested shopper and buyer. So, and, and so, I mean, I think that's been really cool as well. And we've seen hundreds, you know, since February, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of appointments um, and people coming through the Soho store. So that's been really cool. I think that from a business perspective, that's really interesting because it's, I would imagine that the conversion rate of people willing to take the time to book an appointment are generally further down the funnel than maybe somebody just walking in off the street. So it allows you to be a little bit more efficient as well. And I'm sure that there's all kinds of operational efficiencies that I, I can't even think of, like just less time having to clean furniture because people are not putting their dirty shoes on it or whatever, whatever it is. I mean, and, and there's the efficiency of us knowing what they're interested in looking at. I mean, is there a specific piece they want to see? Um, if the appointment's far enough out that there is and we don't have it, we'll have it shipped into the showroom. So, I mean, I think there's there's a lot to that. And then obviously all the data that comes with them filling out that appointment and us that going into our CRM, et cetera. I mean, it's crazy. We've Our showroom has actually only been open two years. Um we were open in March 2019. We had it closed March 2020. Wow. And then we reopened February 2021. So, um, I mean, it's um, kind of a lot of ebbs and flows in there. But, um, but yeah, you totally a lot of efficiencies when going that route. And, yes, I mean, the conversion rate is uh, – I don't have it off the top of my head. But, yeah, the conversion rate of that customer is, is exponentially higher. Yeah, it, it, just, it has to be. <laughs> if you're making an appointment sure. saying exactly what you want to see versus just kind of walking in off the street because you saw the uh, classic leather Chesterfield and you've always wanted to sit in one, it's just going to be way higher. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you've mentioned Jordan and, and Anne. A couple times now. So I assume that you just have a tremendous amount of respect for, for everything that they've, that they've built up and done and competed against some of the big players like restoration hardware. What would you say something that they did during the, the pandemic that you just have a ton of respect for that maybe you just want to give them some props? Just tell a story that you, you've been waiting to tell, but if you brought it up, it would just be totally too self-serving. I mean, I think how we treated the employees during COVID and during the low point of COVID, um, because while e-commerce was up overall, we were flat, if not a little bit down a couple of months. Um, and it was it was tough. I mean, so while e-commerce and consumer has grown exponentially, um, like I said, the trade has not and, and has kind of backslid. So um, we had to make some tough decisions there. And I really think, to Jordan's credit, they've always been family first and treated the industry west like a small family. And just um, 
whether it was, you know, not totally offboarding customers, I mean, uh, employees, but, you know, moving them more to hourly and trying to keep on as much as we could in terms of, you know, keeping their hours as steady and as, as close to full as we could to um, maintain, if there was, you know, one or two that we had, you know, just couldn't make it work, you know, maintaining their healthcare for way longer than um, I think any company is expected to, or, or, or you know, uh, above and beyond in that regard. I mean, I think they, they just treat their employee, the employees incredibly well. And um, I think that shows it's easy to treat employees well when things are, you know, at a high. It's like how you act when they're at their low. And I think um, they showed their true colors in that regard and, and just being incredibly um, loyal and um, above and beyond to the employees. I think that's just such a the kind of story that I, I hope we hear more of coming out in the next few months and in the coming years of brands and, and businesses who survived that really stood by their employees because it shows you can do the right thing and still and still succeed. And I think we get too caught up in the game of efficiencies and looking for the next greatest thing that we forget. At the end of the day, we are trying to make an impact in, in people's lives. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I've I've tweeted recently, and it was after I watched the WeWork documentary on on Hulu. It was like, I think this generation of entrepreneurs, and I don't mean like Jordan Ann's generation or my generation even, but like the one after us, because we're all about the same age in our early forties. But I mean, I think the millennials to an extent, and I think I'm right on the edge there. Like I'm outside of geriatric millennial, the seventy nine, so I'm just barely out there. I think you're a Jerry millennial. And maybe, but I think like, um, I think the millennials to an extent have convinced us that like building a brand slash company that is, uh, you know, growing, profitable, responsible, isn't enough if it doesn't come with a side of world change. And I think that's a dangerous uh, path to go down. Like, I think there is enough to just building a responsible growing profitable company like if that's not enough i don't know what is like everything seems feels like everything now has to come with a side of but we're going to save the dolphins but i'm just thinking of how many companies especially on earth day like i saw ship hop announced that they're going carbon neutral and just i'm trying to think of a brand that i've bought from recently that doesn't have some sort of social cause attached to it whether it's paying employees a fair wages ethical sourcing I just were as we're, we're recording. I mean, in between releasing episodes of Pit Stop with Jason Wong, and just when I've chatted with Jason about how he sources products, and just like I think fast fashion types of stores where it's just it gets you your product very quickly at the low cost. That will always be there, but I think more and more consumers for their main product are asking, well, what else? What else is sure. the quality? It, when all the products can be replicated fairly quickly, those are the differentiators in the the stories that, that customers remember. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just, I guess that I've gone down this path a few times and a couple other conversations I've had. It's like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think like, and I don't want to say it's not something we're worried about or, or take seriously. I mean, like, we, like I just said, I mean, 
the story I'm telling you is that like Jordan Dan treated the employees incredibly well during difficult times. And like Jordan, you know, pre-COVID, Jordan goes to literally every factory we work with to make sure like it's at it's to standards and they're treating their employees well. And that like it's a, it's a, a factory we want to work with, that we feel morally comfortable working with. Um, so, I mean, there's that element to what we do. I mean, I just think like at the end of the day, we're selling furniture, right? Like we're not, you know, I, I kind of go back to the WeWork thing is like they were trying to chip, they like, and Scott Galloway says on that documentary, like for the love of God, I mean, they're, they're renting desks. Yeah. It's a, it's a real estate company, not, not a food bank. Right. Like, what are we talking about? Like we're selling furniture like now, like, yeah, like I want to make sure our furniture doesn't come with termites in it and isn't sold, you know, isn't, you know, yeah, like, we're, we've moved beyond buyer beware and there's a sucker born every minute. It's just interesting that like at the end of the day, like, like what is the moral fiber of industry West? It's that like they treat their employees really well and that they're interested in profitability and they're interested in growth and interested in like adding to the economy of this country. Like Jordan, I actually met working economic development together in a previous life. Oh, cool. And so like, we like, we talk about like job creation and economic development. I mean, like that's what Jordan's doing. Like he's created 50, 60 jobs in the Jacksonville, New York area. Right. Like, so like that's, that's no small thing. And like, that's the American story. And I don't think we, I think we somehow lost track of that, uh, particularly for bootstrapped companies. Like, and that's always been, and, and, and Industry West is 100% bootstrapped still to this day. So like, um, you know, we've taken, he's taken on no outside capital. So like, I think like for some, it kind of sticks in my craw a little bit that we've lost sight of the importance of that. And um, if you're not like a company who's trying to change the world in some odd way or um, upend the apple cart, like in a vertical that has no need to be upended, and, you know, with with a hundred million in venture money like that, you're not going to uh, then you, you don't get the headlines. And that that makes doesn't make a lot of sense to me. At the end of the day, and Eric Van Holtz from Beardbrand, who's on season one, mm-hmm. he's great at this. If you ever hear him talk and it's you get into business to do things your way at the end of the day, whether it's bootstrapping, making a difference to uh, a community of, of people. And I think that's really where we're headed in a post-pandemic world where people learned what was a little bit closer to them, a little bit more in their, in their neighborhood versus just following the, the trendy thing. So I hope that we go back to, to that almost like, I mean, it's communities, the 15 minute city where, where everything's walkable. I mean, I I just go back to stories of like, and I'm not going to, I don't want to name any names, but like, you know, so-and-so raised 200 million to um, disrupt the athleisure vertical it's like did it really need disruption like did it like what what exactly was happening there and then like we're all shocked when it's like oh they're hemorrhaging money and things aren't going the way they were supposed to go but they get all the headlines on the front end when they're quote-unquote disrupting it and all the headlines on the back end when it's all going to pot yeah they have no real business model they don't have solid fundamentals, which Jordan and Anne have, which allow them to to grow the business and keep paying people when the, the stores are closed. They're just really good at spending money. Yes, very good at spending money. Which is easy to do. It can be fun to do. And then maybe it's a good segue to, to wrap it up. As we are returning to more openness, especially in the States, and I think by the time this airs, hopefully we'll be, be a little bit more open here in Canada. What do you think the, the future of furniture buying will look like? If you had to make one big, bold prediction, what would you say it will look like in the next few years? Say 10 years from now, 
what do you think will be different about how we buy furniture? Wow. That's a great question. I think I've been asked about like e-commerce's share of the overall furniture growth. And like, I do think when we reopen, I think e-commerce as a share of, of furniture revenue will go down because I do think retail will pick back up to an extent, brick and mortar will pick back up. And then you'll have some of the commercial buyers who I don't think ever are going to go e-com uh, are going to pick back up. So hotels will start buying again, restaurants will start buying again. So like, do I think we're going to maintain this 45 to 50% share no, I don't. But I do think e-commerce overall is like the overall revenue trajectory um, is going to continue to increase. So, I mean, I think it's only going to um, get better, more efficient. I don't have a huge projection. All I know is that or prediction. I, I, what I do know is that someone's going to, whether it's on the DC side um, or it's on the, something on the distribution side, it's, there's going to be some sort of intercept and someone's going to do something really amazing there because all the companies that are doing sh free shipping, free returns are, are not making money. I mean, they're just not. So um, who's going to be the first to um, be able to do that and then have something really snappy and amazing setup and, and efficient on the distribution logistics side that's going to be able to do the free shipping, free returns and be profitable. Um, and, and what's that going to look like? So, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think in terms of shopping itself, I mean, I think we'll just, I think e-commerce is going to continue to grow. I think people are going to get more comfortable with it. I think, you know, the millennials are going to age into just expecting, you know, the e-commerce experience and, and the ones after them, like my kids who have like never sent an email in their lives, like, it's an assumption, like they're just going to buy online. So, I mean, I think it's only going to grow um, it, or trajectory wise. I love it. And I couldn't agree more. I think one thing that I'm very curious to see is, and you mentioned your kids who, had, who have never sent an email, will in 15 years, what will email look like? That really got, yeah. got my mind turning. But I think, and again, I think Eric from Beardbrand has done a phenomenal job of this, is opening up hybrid retail slash studio space with commercial grade video and photo equipment being cheaper than ever. I could see as you build your showrooms, keeping that lighting in, in mind and just being able to do almost augmented reality on demand with sort of portable green screens and talented graphic designers who can take a couch, especially for the industrial buyers where you almost have sales engineering and you're doing things like setting up a almost in-house staging for what the office will look like without bringing furniture in, without bringing buyers. And I think that could be interesting, but people also love just making a day out of it and having an activity to, to go and feel something that is really tactile that you, you have to plant your cheeks on to get the full experience. Yeah, for sure. There's no question. I mean, and that's just always going to be the case. I mean, there's, there's no way to, it doesn't matter all the augmented reality VR you want. I mean, there's nothing like putting your butt in a seat. So, yeah. um, I mean, so there's only so much you can upend the vertical on that end, um, on that end of it. But, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's interesting. We always joke, it would have been easier to sell watches or t-shirts, but, um, it's been a great ride and great seeing the company grow. Well, I think that's a great spot to wrap it up. Where where can people find you, Ian? What do you have going on? And what I think everyone wants to know is how are your kids' soccer teams doing this year? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Coach Leslie, yeah. 
so industrywest.com and then we have our sister brand uh in favor of.com which sells uh, a lot of great home decor accessory items uh and then obviously all the, the social channels uh, we're on you can find us there i personally am ir leslie uh on twitters where i rail on a number of d2c issues and then talk soccer so yeah soccer season ended well my middle school my jv boys ended um four four and two i got my oldest son will be playing varsity next year i'll be coaching him in varsity and uh we're pretty much all soccer all the time in our house Welcome. Thank you, Lucas. It's great to be here. My pleasure. So that voice that you're hearing is Jamie Sutton, the GM general manager of OmniSend. You got into e-commerce with Shopify Plus at not even day one, day zero, planning out what Shopify Plus was going to be called years uh, years ago. And we were chatting about that in the, the green room. And just, I think that was what, 2014, 2015? 2014 sounds about right. That's definitely dating me though. So... Well, on, on one hand, it's five, like five, six years ago. On the other hand, it feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah. Um, and even before that, uh, I was in the Shopify ecosystem um, doing builds, you know, and then uh, quite frankly, started, I think, my my test store for Shopify Store 200. So I, I uh, was in the, the beta, built some, some websites, and, and instantly saw the profound value and the, the shift that was about to happen on a tectonic uh, scale. And so really drank the Kool-Aid very early on, built a bunch of sites, built a lot of the, the early, early wiki and documentation, uh, made myself just enough of a nuisance to Toby, Daniel, and uh, Cody, the three co-founders that they think finally just kind of got sick of me emailing them. and. Uh, uh, extended an offer for me to come on board to help with uh, theme support even earlier. So wow. this is probably 2006 for my my test store. Wow, so that's very, very original. How did you find Shopify or originally when you were your test store was number 200? And you have to figure Snow Devil was one, so there's like 150 real stores in between. So I was complaining about the state of e-commerce in a kind of uh, front and dev nerd forum somewhere. And I believe Toby had, had posted um, that he was rolling out a beta on a new e-commerce product. I wish I could remember the name. This was back when you had forums <laughs> instead of Slack channels and, and community stuff. Um, so click through and the rest really was history, especially after rolling up those first couple of builds and really seeing how quickly the product was being iterated on. It's amazing how far Shopify and the industry has come since then. Like 20, 2006, really in the grand scheme of things, was not that long ago. If you're a, a hockey fan, I think that that was the last time the Leafs won a playoff series. So it's distance between playoff wins for my local sports team. Really not that long at all. Not at all. And, and what were you selling back then mostly? What did you see getting sold? I know... I remember seeing some of the original stores like Luxie Hair, Epic Mealtime, selling a lot of t-shirts and merchandise. What did e-commerce look like back then when you were first getting started? 
I mean, it's kind of funny because if you think about like going back on the Wayback Machine and looking at like Amazon's website in 2006, I believe there's still copies of Shopify's uh, original website from, from back then as well. So uh, clearly not as slick, uh, clearly early Web 2.0. I believe the first website that I put together and, and put up on Shopify was Callie's Biscuits, um, which is interesting because uh, I was informed last week that she's got a show on PBS now, um, and it is exactly what it sounds like. Um, she is based here in Charleston um, and creates the most delicious uh, biscuits uh, that are pre-packed frozen and shipped anywhere in the world and uh, has an amazing cult following. So <laughs> super interesting that we were just talking about this with some friends a couple of weeks ago. That's funny. And I loaded up the Wayback Machine of Amazon.com. And it was funny. You can shop these stores at Amazon.com, Target and Office Depot. Yeah. <laughs> Visit our featured partners' websites, Shutterfly. So they were doing affiliate oh, marketing wow. in the, the footer and they had a muggle counter from Harry Potter. Oh my God, that's hilarious. And back, if you were listening to, to Rolled Up, you can get an MP3 player, including the Zune. The Zune. Wow, I remember that. Yeah, the, the Microsoft Zune. But since you gave me a, a softball segue, let's jump into it with, so the, the biscuits, they're, they're shipped frozen and sent out. Another product, and just looking at Amazon, is that you can see the, the difference of, it was all stuff you could put in a box versus things like home office or furniture. As with the pandemic, we saw that really just changed how people work. Talking to uh, another Charleston Ian from Industry West, he mentioned how they lost a lot of their their corporate revenue from from offices and interior designers, mm -hmm. and just shopping changed. So I think that that was a huge shift that we saw of sort of e-commerce BC before COVID and present present day e-commerce. And you, I mean, we've chatted. Omnison gave a, a gives a stipend for remote work. What were some of uh, the challenges that that you saw as an executive going going remote and trying to get everyone set up to be a little bit more remote friendly? So I've worked remote so long. So I think one of the, the lessons for me here was, you know, this is a for a lot of people, this is a very new concept. Mm -hmm. um, so being empathetic, understanding that not everyone is like has a you know safe, quiet place to work at home. Some people are in you know, condos, some people are in, you know, flats in, in New York or in, in uh, Europe. Um, and having an understanding of what it's like to sit and work with a laptop literally on your lap on a couch somewhere and understanding that this creates additional challenges for, um, you know, folks who are, you know, really trying to balance living through COVID um, and being productive and, and working in very uncomfortable positions. We had, you know, uh, I, I was having uh, calls with, with partners and you know, I was having calls with some people who, you know, they were having calls from their closet um, because that was the place that they could be and be away from other noise, not create noise for sometimes the spouse who's also working from home yep. or children who are trying to do remote learning. So. You know, one of the things that we tried to do was provide that office stipend so that, you know, you had a comfortable chair, you had a, a nice monitor um, and what you needed, um, a desk, 
um, and, and, and at least try to make things as, as comfortable as possible, right? I don't think anything, at least from my perspective, is going to go 100% back to the way it was. Like, even when we go back to office, people are going to rethink. It's going to be flex space. It's going to, and, and, and I want to be clear, everybody on, on our team is very excited to, you know, they're all vaccinated. They're ready for some level of, you know, collaborative uh, space again and very much, you know, ready to jump back in, get the culture piece up and running, get the collaboration piece up and running. But I don't think that that will negate the ability to, you know, be able to work remotely, work from a home office um, when they need to. Yeah. And we, we talked about it where when you ramp up a big project and start something else, it's very unpersonal to just close a laptop and open up another one. It just, it feels weird, which can be career changes, onboarding, everything and not meeting coworkers who you're working with. Yeah, that was probably, and that's still, um, you know, we're, we're actually planning right now for kind of a, a get together for the team in August. And, you know, we've, we're, I think we're almost 25 people uh, just in North America and multiple people who have never met each other um, outside of, you know, a two-dimensional, you know, hangout or, or Zoom meeting. And in my previous life, I've never hired anybody that I didn't have a meal with before. So, you know, that's a pretty big adjustment. And for people to also take a bet with a new employer um, without ever meeting anybody in person is a stretch from, from people, you know, who you're interviewing and wanting to onboard good talent. So I think it's been a challenging year, but I'm, you know, I think some things have changed for the better. And I think in retrospect, everybody, you know, it's easy to complain about what, you know, what your situation is. Um, but when you don't have an office to go to and you're working from your closet or you know, from your uh, living room, um, I think everybody is very much ready to have some some level of in-person workspace again. And I would say one of the, the biggest challenges as an exec, as a lead, and really with an international team, you know, we've got uh, hires in the UK, France, uh, Eastern Europe at our home office in Vilnius, uh, all over the US, and it's a challenge um, to not have uh, that in-person time that is really where you build the, the relationships, you build the trust. Um, and so, you know, we, we adapted like everybody else did, but there were challenges with that as well. Like, okay, let's have the Zoom happy hour, um, which is not very, you know, it, it was novel <laughs> uh, early on. And then it's like, oh, great. I, you know, I've been in front of a monitor for all day and I get to get back in front of a monitor. And so, we, we did some experiments, we did some trivia that was kind of fun, um, but I think nothing is it really beats having that in-person uh, experience for building deeper relationships and deeper company culture. I agree. There's just the, the little nuances of just being in person where A, you can read people better so you know how they're feeling, but also just Zoom happy hours are kind of, it's one person doing a lot of talking and a lot of others just trying to keep their smile on. Yeah, fake it until you make it and sometimes you don't make it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> that means it's quitting time. I hope you've got a cold one ready to crack or something rolled up, burrito or other. Make sure you're subscribed for the next episode of Rolled Up wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.